Welcome everybody. Hello. My name's Paul Dolan um, from the LSE and this is Richard Thaler from Chicago. Um, yeah, whoa. Got, you got your fan club in? Um, yeah, one. One fan. My, my fan. Your fan. Someone who's drunk already. Um, so the plan is for a th- at... I, I don't intend to talk for more than 30 minutes. That was what the words that I heard. But we know that people's intentions are not very good guides to their behaviour, so um, be ready for an hour-long no. talk. No, 30 minutes. 30-minute 30 talk, and then we'll open it up to the floor for questions. So I'm not going to waste any more time. The floor is yours, Richard. OK. Time to misbehave. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for having me. Great to see you again, Paul. Paul and I worked together uh, for a bit on the Behavioral Insight team. Uh, Okay. So, um, as you see, the title uh, that I chose for this, I must say it's a bit hard to give a talk on this book. Um, So, um, this is the title I selected because uh, it's the reaction many people have to... uh, to what I do, uh, well, there's one of two reactions. Um, one is, oh, this bullshit again. Uh, or the other is, uh, really, did anybody ever really believe what you claim uh, economists believed? So uh, I'm going to try to explain that part. So let's start with uh, what is behavioral economics. And There's a nice quote from Herb Simon, who was kind of, uh, you could think of him as the first behavioral economist, although he he left the field pretty quickly. Uh, This is a, a definition he had in an encyclopedia. And he points out um, a a free book to anyone who knows the definition of pleonasm. Okay, it's a redundant phrase. So he points out that uh, the phrase would seem to be redundant. After all, what other kind of economics could there be? And then he answers his question, well, there's the regular kind. And uh, the reason why we need the adjective lies in the assumptions uh, about human behavior that are made in standard economic theory. Uh, Simon was a Chicago PhD, uh, though from the political science department, but he was well acquainted with the, the gospel um, in the early 50s. So um, what, is, what are the standard assumptions? It's essentially that people choose by optimizing. So you can... It's not completely unfair to economics to say that economics consists of optimization plus equilibrium. That if equilibrium meaning that if prices are free to fluctuate, they will fluctuate in such a way that supply equals demand, and the supply and demand comes from agents optimizing, and that's it. So it's a beautiful theory. Um, 
There's only one problem with it, which is that it's wrong. So, uh, it's wrong because the agents in the economy are not like Spock. So, if Spock was a representative agent, as economists like to refer to people, um, then economic theory would really be splendid. But instead... uh, Isn't that good? That's actually the best thing in the talk. So, uh, I'm going to let that linger. Um, it, 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 you know, we're more like Homer Simpson than we are like Spock. So specifically, uh, econs, as I like to call them, uh, Spock-like creatures, uh, are perfect calculators They are as smart as the smartest economist, possibly even as smart as the smartest economist thinks he is. (laughs) Yes, I do have someone in mind. I won't name him. Uh, They have rational expectations, so their forecasts of the future are as good as the best econometrician. They have no self-control problems. They never diet um, because there's no need to diet. They are eating the optimal things um, and just the, you know, in just the right quantities, mostly kale. Um, and uh, they're jerks. Um, if you leave your wallet um, on the seat as you get up to leave, no, they won't point out. Uh, sir, you've left your wallet behind. Um, if they can get away with it, they'll take it. Um, so humans are dumber, uh, weaker willed. Uh, I don't have to tell you that part. Uh, and a bit nicer, right? Um, a, a colleague of mine, a uh, postdoc at the University of Chicago, has been running studies around the world where they leave wallets behind. And about half of them get returned intact. So um, here's, here's an early example of human nature. Uh, it, it's not a great photograph. Um, it, it's one I took in Ithaca, Uh, where I taught for many years. Let me point out the key features of this photograph. It's it's a farm stand. Uh, They're selling rhubarb at the moment. Um, There's rhubarb in here. Uh, You can see it's $1.50. It's an honor stand. So uh, people can put the money for the rhubarb in this box here. Uh, There's a slit on the top, and notice the lock. I think these farmers have exactly the right model of human nature, Uh, meaning that there are enough people who will put money in the slot to make it worthwhile to put out some produce. Um, But if you just left all the money in a bowl, there are, are enough econs around that somebody would take it. So uh, that's a kind of nuanced view of human nature, and it's more nuanced than um, that of most economists. 
So, let me tell you a story about uh, when I first started teaching at, at, at Cornell. Um, I was teaching the basic uh, microeconomics class, uh, the, one of the first classes MBA students take. And I wrote an exam, and it was pretty hard. Uh, I wanted to sort out the really good students from the average, from the horrid. And um, so the average score was 72%. You know, these are students who had been admitted into an Ivy League business school and uh, were not used to getting 72%. And so they were angry. Um, Not angry at themselves. They were angry at me. (laughs) And I was uh, a young assistant professor without tenure and um, worried about my job prospects. I was also doing research on the kind of thing I'm talking about tonight. Um, So uh, what to do? I didn't really want to make my exam any easier. So I I thought about this for a while, and then when the next midterm came along, I made it out of 137 points. Now, this exam turned out to be a little harder. The average score was only 70%. But um, if you crunch the numbers, um, that gives you an average score of 96. Students loved it. 96 is just a really nice number. And, uh, in fact, many students scored above 100, which produces a feeling close to ecstasy. (laughs) Uh, Now, uh, this is an example of what I will call misbehaving. And uh, it's misbehaving, the definition of misbehaving is not doing something wrong, it's doing something inconsistent with economic theory. And it's also an illustration of what in the book I refer to as a supposedly irrelevant factor, which I abbreviate as SIF. Uh, so what, what are SIFs? You know, economists have disagreements about almost everything. Would the UK economy be better if we had more austerity or less? We can get economists to opine on either side of that with 100% certainty. Um, but there are some set of things about which most economists are in universal agreement, and it's a set of things that do not matter. So one would be the total number of points available on an exam. Right? That can't possibly matter. Um, This course was graded on a curve anyway. Um, So... Uh, There are other things that don't matter. Social norms don't matter. People are just maximizing their own utility. They don't care what other people do. Framing the concept that my mentors, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, uh, created, where you change the wording of a problem and you get people to make different choices, again, the wording of a problem can't matter. If it did, all of formal economics would just cease to exist because it would no longer be possible to 
take a problem and uh, translate it into an equation because you wouldn't know how people were formulating it in their heads or how it was formulated. If, if a storekeeper says it's 25% off or they say buy three, get one free, um, well, if people behave differently with that, economic theory is out the window. So um, defaults are another thing that economic theory says don't matter. Um, you know, if you walk into a room and the TV is on and it's on some station, that should not affect what channel you watch since you can switch with exactly one thumb click, right? The transaction costs are about as low as possible, but how many of us have experienced finishing some show and finding ourselves watching something dreadful for quite a while because it happened to come on um, after the preceding show. You guys do have more than one channel now, right? I mean, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of obvious that all of this stuff does matter in the real world, but um, economists had a long list of excuses, and I would say the first 20 years of my career were devoted almost exclusively to responding to put-downs as to why the kind of thing I was interested in didn't matter. So the first one has a two-word, as if. You could just wave off almost everything I was saying just by uttering those two words. And... um, Those two words came from uh, Milton Friedman. And um, uh, he argued that we shouldn't judge a theory by the realism of the assumptions. We should judge it by the uh, validity of its predictions. And therefore, the fact that people can't calculate how much they need to save for retirement and what rate of return they're going to get and then do the annuity tables to figure out how to spread their income during retirement. The fact they can't do those calculations, he said, doesn't matter at all. All we need is that the predictions are good. Now, you know, that's fine uh, if the predictions are good. So here's a quiz question. In the United States, what's the ratio of gun deaths by homicide to gun deaths by suicide? Uh, if you ask this question, uh, most people think the, there are about twice as many homicide deaths as suicide deaths. It ter- turns out uh, the opposite is true. Um, there are about twice as many suicide gun deaths as homicide gun deaths. The explanation for that is uh, uh, Kahneman and Tversky's availability heuristic. Um, Homicides get more treatment in the news than suicides. The irony is that I would guess, we can have a show of hands, how many people in this room have been personally touched by a suicide? 
How many by a homicide? So in, in a crowd like this, most people know at least, you know, one or two steps away someone who committed suicide, not so much a homicide. So it's not availability in terms of personal experience, it's availability through the media. Um, nevertheless, in America, many people buy guns to protect their family. Um, having a gun in the house greatly increases the chance that a family member will successfully commit suicide. But um, this is not a talk about guns. Um, the point is, and this was the big idea, the aha moment I got from reading Kahneman and Tversky's early work in the 70s, is people make predictable errors. Now, why was that an aha moment? It gets rid of the as if. People are not acting as if they were, in this case, having rational expectations. They're making a predictable error. I can run this 100 times and 95 times. The crowd will make the same mistake. Um, Okay. Now, uh, Professor Binmore happened to be in the crowd? Okay. Um, So I'll tell you a story about Professor Binmore. I would have told it anyway, but it would be good to know because uh, he wields a cane um, and has been known to use it. So uh, he and I were, uh, if you don't know, Ken Binmore is a famous mathematician, game theorist, and um, economist. And he and I were speaking at a conference in Jerusalem many years ago. Uh, it was uh, some summer camp for students, and uh, we each were giving three lectures on successive days, and uh, I was speaking first, and he, did, or no, uh, well, I don't remember, but he started giving rebuttals to my lectures at the beginning of his. And so uh, he made the claim that if he were the owner of a grocery store, he would want to read my research because this kind of stuff might matter for small stuff like what you buy in the grocery store. But if he had a car dealership or was studying anything big and important, then no, no need to worry. Okay. Now, so that was one argument I would hear often. Another argument I would hear, not so much from Ken, is in the real world, people learn. So the argument was, Kahneman Tversky often gave people little problems like the one I showed you about gun deaths, one shot. Um, and, And the argument I would hear is, well, in the real world, it's not like that. You learn. Now, my usual response is, well, they haven't yet, right? I mean, we're a bunch of adults in here, and you didn't know what the ratio was, but nevertheless, people would make this argument, and so, therefore, we didn't really need to pay any attention to these experiments that involved one-shot 
uh, trials. So um, this is the what I heard from Binmore on day one. So on day two, I went up on the blackboard and drew what I now call the Binmore continuum. And um, here it is. Um, I wrote a list of things that we do or buy, uh, buying milk, suits, houses, getting married, and retiring. Um, milk we do once or twice a week. Suits, well, you know, every so often. Um, houses, maybe once a decade. Marriage, not more than two or three times for most of us. Uh, retirement, only once, barring reincarnation. So, uh, now, notice, if you look down this continuum, the stakes are going up, and the no- amount of practice is going down. So, Binmore was exactly wrong. The... What do I think people are really good at? Buying milk. I I think almost everyone in this room has probably mastered the optimal quantity of milk to buy when you go to the grocery store. For my wife and I, it's two half gallons. Okay? Um, We make lattes and eat cereal in the morning, and that's about the right amount. Uh, we don't run out before we go back to the grocery store, and we don't have so much that it spoils. You know, we really nailed that one. Um, you know, uh, houses, mortgages, you know, the important stuff. You know, we saw in the recent financial crisis how good people were at picking mortgages. Um, you know, so it, it's just wrong to think that we're going to be really good at the big stuff. In fact, there's exactly zero evidence. I don't know of a single study that shows that people get better as you raise the stakes. There might be one out there. I don't know of it. Um, So, raising the stakes, no. Um, And other people, uh, people make the argument, well, if the stakes are high enough, then people will go out and hire some expert. Now, um, you know, uh, where are you going to find these experts, right? Um, the, The expert, there are experts out there, but none of them have incentives to make you choose like an econ. Um, they may behave like econs. Um, you know, matchmakers have kind of gone out of business, uh, possibly for the worse. Um, so we really don't see this. So, so, so much for that argument. So here's the last one, and I'm going to tell you about a memorable dinner that I describe at some length in this book. And it was a dinner... Um, where I was sitting between Amos Tversky, my psychology hero, and Michael Jensen, a colleague of mine, a finance professor, who at that time, he's gone through several changes in life, uh, no sex change, but um, uh, belief changes, 
and um, uh, and he was at that time an efficient market rational guy. And so Amos decided to have some fun with Jensen. And uh, he starts asking him, you know, Mike, how's your wife's decision making? So Mike regaled us with stories for about 15 minutes about all the dumb things that his wife did. And then Amos asked him about his students, Congress, his dean, you know. And basically everybody, Mike thought everybody was an idiot. Um, So um, then Amos sort of pulls the rug out from under him and says, all right, so I don't get it. Everybody you know is an idiot, but the agents in your models are all geniuses. What gives? And uh, Jensen replies, Amos, he had this condescending way, Amos you just don't understand. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm pretty sure, this was a long time ago, but I'm pretty sure those were his exact words. Um, now, what is it that he didn't understand? It's what in this book I call the invisible hand wave. Now, um, here's the invi- how the invisible hand waves go, and this is how Jensen kind of started. Look, if people behaved in markets the way they do in your silly experiments, then, now it's my claim that no one has ever been able to finish this argument keeping both hands in their pockets. <laughs> I, don't think it's, I don't think it's possible to do. Um, somebody is well willing to try, but uh, you can ask a question later if you think you can do that. Before I return to that, let me remind you that in The Wealth of Nations, Smith uses the phrase exactly once. Here it is. Okay? Uh, A business owner is led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worst for society. Nor is it always the worst for... That's not a big claim, right? You know, it might so happen that things will turn out well from this invisible hand. But never mind, this is not a a talk about laissez-faire economics. The the invisible hand wave, uh, how is it supposed to work? Uh, Suppose that I choose the wrong career. I probably did. Becoming an economist was a bad move. Um... Uh, you know, I marry the wrong person. I don't save for retirement. I take out a mortgage that I won't be able to repay if interest rates go up and prices uh, don't go up. What happens to me? Well, I don't die. I don't disappear. I don't go bankrupt. I might go bankrupt with the with the mortgage, uh, but. Then I come out of bankruptcy, right? People, markets don't make humans into econs. There's, there's no magic potion. And this is an important point, which is why I put it in bold. And it's a point that economists often miss. It's much easier to make money 
taking advantage of people's misbehaving than it is to correct them. Here's one example. Uh, in one recent year, in the U.S. alone, they sold $27 billion worth of extended warranties. Uh, my colleague Matthew Rabin told me that he was offered an extended warranty on a memory stick. You know, <laughs> you know don't buy extended warranties. So, but, you know, I can give you the advice, don't buy extended warranties, but it's very hard for me to make money from giving that advice. Lots of people are making money selling extended warranties. The same with some kinds of mortgages. You know, I wrote New York Times columns saying, don't do that. Uh, I, I get about a dollar an hour writing those columns. So, uh, so here's the last. Uh, the University of Chicago uh, alumni magazine wrote a piece about me a while back. And my late colleague, the genius, uh, probably the greatest Chicago price theorist of all time, uh, in the University of Chicago traditionally went and asked Gary what he thought of my research. And uh, this is what he said. Um, it doesn't matter if 90% of people can't do the complex analysis required to calculate probabilities. The 10% of people who can will end up in the jobs where it's required. Okay? That's, so I call this the Becker conjecture. Um, well, is that true? So um, what about the National Football League, that other kind of football that we have in the U.S.? Um, teams are worth over a billion dollars. Owners need to have a spare billion in order to be able to buy a team, it would seem that that would qualify for being uh, in the 10%, right? So, um, the, in the National Football League, the teams select players through a process called the draft. And uh, you only need to know two things about this. One is the teams pick in an order determined by last year's finish, so the worst team picks first. And the second is that the picks can be traded. So you can trade the first pick for a bunch of lower picks. This is the market price of picks that we estimated. Notice two things about this. One, it's very steep. You can trade the first pick for half a dozen second-round picks. The second is that this curve is an amazingly good fit. Really fantastic. You know, I, I thought a moment that my uh, collaborator, uh, Cade Massey, was the world's greatest econometrician, or we had discovered Newton's unknown fifth law of draft picks. Um, then we, no, we found out that teams have a chart. This, they call it the chart. <laughs> so some, uh, one of the teams um, ha asked somebody, an engineer on their staff, to figure out what picks were worth. He wrote down this chart. Uh, for a while, it was the Dallas Cowboys that had this. 
for a while they were the only ones that had it. Then it sort of floated around the league. Now you can download it from ESPN. And all the teams have it. And they use it. And that's this. <laughs> so why did we get such a good fit? Because we had estimated this. And we estimated it with great precision. Now, the question is, is it right? You know, is this an efficient market? Well, I'm not going to go into how we did this. I'm going to just show you the results. This is the value of the players uh, according to when they get picked. And you can see the teams know something because quality goes down. This is how much you have to pay them. Notice that goes down steeper. Salaries for uh, rookie players are dictated by the league. If you subtract this curve from this one, you get the surplus to the team, and that's this curve down here, which you'll notice is upward sloping for a while. I'm going to replot that. That's, this is the curve I just showed you. This is the first one I showed you. In an efficient market, they're the same. Right? So this is market prices. These are values. They're not the same. So the Becker conjecture doesn't seem to apply, at least in the National Football League. Uh, what about... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip this because I'm going to run over my 30-minute uh, estimate um, and, and, and talk, to, uh, talk about financial markets. So that was one study of markets. Here's another uh, last topic I'm going to talk about. Um, the official market hypothesis is thought to be, the financial markets are thought to be the place where economic theory, standard economic theory will work best. The stakes are highest. Smart money can come in. You can sell short, which is very important. In the football example, the reason why the, that can remain is you can't short the high picks. Um, there, are, there are two components of this theory. One is you can't beat the market. I call that the no free lunch hypothesis. And the other is that prices are right. Now, the first part is pretty much true, close to being true. It's hard to beat the market. The second one, financial economists for many years had the comfort that came with thinking that this aspect of their theory was untestable. There's nothing more comforting about a theory than the thought that it can't be tested. Uh, it can. So, uh, here's... Uh, Here's an example. There's a, a closed-end mutual fund. I think you call them unit trusts here. Uh, that happens in the U.S., and it happens to have the ticker symbol C-U-B-A. Okay? It invests in stuff around the Caribbean. It cannot, and has never invested in Cuba. 
it's against the law. And there wouldn't be, there are no securities, right? So it's illegal and impossible. Otherwise, you know, they'd be heavily invested in Cuba. Um, now, you can probably guess where this is going. Um, it, for years, this traded at about a 15% discount, meaning you could buy $100 worth of assets for $85. Um, when President Obama made his announcement about making friends with Cuba, here's what happened. <laughs> so you can see um, it's selling for a discount for months. It goes back for years. That trading, You know, here's the day of President Obama's announcement. This is a bit of a hysteria. Then it went down, but... It, right now, it's selling at about a 40% premium. So you, you used to be able to buy $100 worth of assets for 85 Now it costs you 140 I claim that's not an efficient market. Um, we've had lots of tumult, and I'm guilty of uh, overconfidence in how much of this talk I could do. Um, so here's my conclusion about the official market hypothesis. Fisher Black, the co-creator of the Black-Scholes option pricing model, uh, once said that he thought markets were efficient, meaning that prices were within a factor of two of being right. I think after seeing the NASDAQ go from 5,000 to 1,400, I could have convinced him to revise that to three. Uh, whether or not I could, that's not real efficient. You know, suppose you went to buy some new car, and I tell you, well, the price is within a factor of two or three of being right. Uh, you wouldn't say that's an efficient market, right? So uh, where are we going? Uh, I end the book with a call, kind of a cheeky call for what I call evidence-based economics, Again, you might ask, what other kind of economics could there be? Um, and uh, the answer is, economic theory is not evidence-based. It's axiom-based. It's based on a theory of econs, and econs don't exist. So we don't have an ev evidence-based theory. We have lots of evidence and lots of great economics that doesn't rely on that theory, um, but the theory is not evidence-based, and it's time for new theories that are evidence-based. And I'm going to end by just putting this up, which is how the book ends, and I'll let you read it, and I'm going to shut up so we can have Q&A. Uh, yeah, can you guys my head, that? my head will be in the way while they're reading it. No, no. Well, uh, somebody will undoubtedly get rid of that. Someone with more technical savvy than us. Cool. Well, the hands are going up before I've even <laughs> thanked you for to stay facing the mic. Um, thank you for thank you for that talk. Um, it's actually really hard, obviously, for me to take issue with, with any of that, which is really quite horrible, really. I um, find that disappointing, that there's nothing yeah. I could argue with. Um, 
it's pretty much over for me, really, for the night. Um, but so um, I'm, I'm trying to think of something in the course of the next few minutes. So um, that was fantastic. And I think I, I will just say one thing. Actually, let me say two things. Um, one thing is that I think it's a really good reminder of things that some of us take for granted now that when you were doing this work, no one really did. I think that was the first insight for me. The second one, I was, I was thinking of uh, whether are there markets that work really well? And until May the 7th this year, I thought Betfair was a really fantastic market. Mm. This is a brilliant the prediction, prediction market, betting exchanges. And I was eulogizing to everybody about how you didn't need to read opinion polls. Just look at betting exchanges because they're always right. Yeah. And on May the 7th, they were yeah, horribly it, it, wrong. Yeah. So there's another market that falls by the wayside. Um, and I lost some money on that, by the way, as well. So um, let, me, uh, let me open it up to some questions um, from the audience. I'm sure there's many. There's a hand here that's... I don't know whether we should go to the hands that are really raised immediately. Uh, let's, come, let's come in the front row um, here. The easiest mic to go to first. Uh, thanks for the talk, uh, Professor Thaler. Um, as an American citizen, I'm curious, you've been involved with the Behavioral Insights team, and given that it's not fully owned by the government and there's many sort of ownership uh, groups, how do you feel like that affects potential conflicts of interest in the outcomes? Um, I, I am unaware of any conflicts of interest. The the so yeah the behavioral insight team which i was involved in from its inception um was just growing too fast to exist coherently inside the government um we started with well, paul was on the initial team indeed uh we had five or six people yeah, I think there was the two of us to begin with. Well, there? yeah, three or four people. yeah, David, 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 David Halpern, Gus, yeah, yeah, three or four. So uh, it's now sixty, and uh, there's de- demand for their services from other governments. So it's uh, still a nonprofit. Uh, it's owned a third by the government, uh, a third by the employees, and a third by Nesta, which is a nonprofit foundation. So. Uh, I, I don't see any, any problem with it. Okay, cool. There was another hand in the front here, in the middle, I think, here. Yeah. yeah, so Mike here in the middle. And you, you know, know what? We can Mike. speed this up by giving the other okay, Mike to this hand in the middle, from and this young lady, the right. and she'll be so on efficient. deck, as we say in America. Um, you indicated that people managed to buy milk efficiently, um, but you also muttered that big uh, people didn't learn on training. So at some stage, they must have been transferring, unless it's innate to buy milk efficiently, they must have learned to buy it efficiently. No, no. Uh, I'm saying if you get enough practice, you learn. We know how to tie our shoes. We, uh, we're adequate drivers. You can, um, you know, you can learn to throw and catch a Frisbee. Um, so, 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 so one can learn. You need a lot of practice, and yeah. the big stuff we don't get much practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's my Thank point. You. Okay, and then we'll go up to the. We'll go take one more here in the front yeah, here, and works. then we'll go. It's, it's good. I know it's good. Right. Do you yeah. want to just yeah, make, make it, it easy? Yeah. 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 Make it easy. There's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to make a note of that. Okay. Um. <laughs> Thanks very much for a very interesting talk. 
Uh, you've spoken a lot about the assumptions of economics and spoken before using the language in particular that there's a straw man of economics. So the idea that there's a rational homo economics man. Um, and I wonder to what extent as, that you think that applies to other disciplines. So as a psychologist, I wonder if there's a straw man of psychology, for example, or well, even sociology you know, or other disciplines. The thing is that economics is the only social science that claims to have um, a coherent theory. Um, and that's said to be its strength. So uh, no psychologist would be insulted if you said you don't have a coherent theory of behavior. They have hundreds of theories of behavior, um, one for each phenomena. And now, ten for each psychologist. Uh, yeah, and yeah, many for each, uh, many for each phenomena. So um, now it's fair to say that that's a weakness of the other social sciences. So we're we're faced with a choice. There, there will. Uh, this is a good chance for me to say there will not be a new general behavioral economic theory. It's not going to happen. If you want one parsimonious theory of economics, optimization plus equilibrium is as good as you're going to get. And we can't do without it. We can't do behavioral finance without the efficient market hypothesis. We can't do prospect theory, uh, which is Kahneman-Tversky's theory of decision-making under uncertainty, without expected utility as a benchmark. So we need these rash. You know, I couldn't do my gun suicide and homicide without the facts, right? So we need these benchmark theories as starting points. And the state of the art in behavioral economics now is standard theory plus one change. So standard theory plus self-control problem. Standard theory plus overconfidence. You know, that's not very far to get in 40 years. But that, so, you know, it's hard. <laughs> the, the, there's a reason why economists uh, studied rational behavior. And that's if you want formal theories, those are the easiest to solve. Right? Solving, you know, if I give you a... a Solve for the circumference of a circle. If you remember the formula, you can do it, right? Trying to write down a model of what people are going to guess is the cubic square meters of this room. You know, we could, we could compute the correct answer, but we'd have no way of estimating what the average guess would be. So um, behavioral economics is way harder, but... Um, the good news is that the young people in the field are way smarter than me. And so uh, we're making progress really fast. Cool, thank you. I've got a couple of questions from the back. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, Nico McDonald, a graduate of this institution. Um, the Financial Times lexicon emailed the definition of classical economics this week uh, and noted, as you did, that Smith is regarded as the founder of it but noted that it had been critiqued uh, from many directions from neoclassical economist, economists in the early 20th century to Keynes and others. And I'm wondering 
whether you've really set up something of a paper tiger in your critique of Homo economicus, which has been attacked and, uh, which we say, um, derided by many intellectuals uh, over the years. And it seems to me a bit disingenuous because it's very easy to do, uh, and yet you haven't actually cited anyone else's work, well, Herb Simons and a few others, in that, where there are some, many economists who've actually critiqued it. Yeah, well, um, if you look at the book, you'll find 25 pages of references. You know, I, um, I certainly don't claim... And, in fact, I say the first behavioral economist was Adam Smith, who, before writing The Wealth of Nations, wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which mm-hmm. talks about passions. So I claim no originality... Uh, Keynes was the first great behavioral macroeconomist. There hasn't been a second one. Uh, um, and I, I'm hoping at the end of the book I say we need behavioral macro. And, you know, it's been uh, 70 years since Keynes. Did I do the math right? Maybe it's 80. Uh, I'm not that good in math. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I completely agree that um, the, there were arguments in the 1950s when the mathematical revolution began and it, the, uh, the, about the realism of the assumptions, and that's when Friedman came in mm. with his as-if, uh, and then people stopped worrying about it. So, um, you know, if... We were doing economics the way Keynes did, then uh, there would be no reason for me to exist. Okay, thank so, you. Um, just before we take that next question, that does. You want to say a little bit more about why you think the whole behavioural uh, revolution, if there has been one, has been in micro and not in macro? Why have we not had anyone yeah. since Keynes? So um, the, here's the biggest surprise. The biggest success story is a complete surprise, and it's finance. If you say what subfield of economics has the largest, most complete literature, it's behavioral finance. And it has shifted the debate in mainstream finance um, so that now it's pretty hard even to tell who's behavioral and who's not. Um, I'd say the least progress has been in macro. Now, why is that? Finance has two things going for it. One is fantastic data. Uh, You know, we have in the U.S. daily stock price data for thousands of stocks going back to 1926. Um, The second is very precise predictions. And testable theories and false theories. So that's a great combination. Great data and well-defined predictions. Macro is the opposite. Now, why do I say there's not much data? Because you hear numbers every day. (laughs) The problem is that um, recessions come, you know... Every, you know, not very often. We've had 
two big financial crises this you know one last century one this century so uh we we don't have that many data points so the what that's meant is there are no uh, slam dunks f- for behavioralists now you might think the great depression a decade of 20 plus percent unemployment in most of the uh, developed world would be a pretty embarrassing uh, fact for neoclassical macroeconomists, but some just say, well, it was a good decade to relax. So, so, so I, I think, um, you know, if the Great Depression and the financial crisis were still in doesn't embarrass you, then nothing will. So, so I, I think we're not going to have things like my Cuba fund example, and there are many such examples in the book, um, in macro. And we're going to have to just admit that we don't know anything. And at least we don't, we don't know anything that some economist thinks is completely wrong. So, um, and, and if there's any field that should be behavioral, it's macro. So I understand why it hasn't happened yet and why Keynes was the first and last great macroeconomist. Um, but I'm hoping uh, the next decade will bring out um, good behavioral macro. Sorry, before we take that next question, do you then think that the financial crisis, this last one, was, a, was really the best and maybe the, was an opportunity missed? Well, well, you in what sense? In the sense for a rethinking of the... No, no. I mean, I think, look... Of the macro model. You know, we've been studying the Great Depression for... <laughs> since the 30s, right? Since Keynes. And the Great Depression spawned Keynes. Mm. The financial crisis will spawn... It will. The, the, and, That's and, very optimistic. And, and, you know... The financial crisis had misbehaving going on from top to bottom, from homeowners who took out mortgages they couldn't pay back, to lenders who gave them those mortgages, to people who put them into securities, to rating agencies that said they were AAA and risk-free, to the investment banks who bought those securities, thinking the rating agencies had some idea what they were doing, I mean, if yeah. there, you know, if you can't find misbehaving there, you won't find it anywhere. So, uh, I, I, and there's lots of good work going on, uh, but uh, it hasn't gelled yet. Okay. Uh, remember, Ben Bernanke wrote his thesis on the Great Depression, right? <laughs> the, the future Ben Bernankes will be writing their theses on uh, this financial crisis. Cool. Thank you. Okay. Now your turn. Hey, so I'm Adam. I work for your friend and former colleague, Gus. Um, you said it was easier to make money by catering to consumers' biases than by trying to correct them. To me, this suggests that it's a regulation problem. And we've seen organisations like the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK become very interested in behaviour economics. What advice would you have to regulators that wanted to include behaviour economics in their t- toolkit? Can you practically find banks for framing 
so, I mean, it, it's hard to give a short answer to that question. I, I mean, I will say one, one problem is that um, the, the regulators are massively understaffed. Uh, I was once on a panel with the head of the SEC in the U.S., the Security, and Ex- Security Exchange Commission. And I asked her, what was the ratio of lawyers to economists at the SEC? And it was about 100. You know, they, 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 the, the SEC went and uh, kicked the tires at Bernie Madoff's fund three times and didn't find anything. Anybody who knew anything about finance would have realized that what he said he was doing wasn't possible on the scale he was doing it. And so I, I think financial regulation is really hard. I, I think it uh, – let me just say uh, there's an idea that I've been pushing. I don't talk about it in this book because I couldn't – everybody was yelling at me. It was already too long, and I couldn't figure out any way to make this fun – and um, that was the rule. If it wasn't fun, it didn't get in the book. But um, so I'm going to stick it on you now. Um, uh, it, it's something that in the U.S. we call smart disclosure. Um, here, uh, parts of it are called my data. And uh, the idea is to give people access to data, including their own usage data, in machine-readable language. Now, my greatest accomplishment, I think, in my five years of working with the Behavioral Insight Team was to nudge Parliament to change one word into two words. Um, There's a law you have that says that if someone you do business with is collecting your usage data, say your smartphone, then they have to be willing to share it with you, and the law said, in an intelligible format. Intelligible. The way firms um, treated that law was, if you asked for it and sent them 20 pounds, they would send you a 200-page PDF file which is stretching the definition of intelligible. So um, thanks to a lucky series of events uh, and running into the right people in (coughs) 10 Downing Street on the right day, um, that law was modified and intelligible was replaced by machine-readable. Now, that law is on the books. It has not been enforced. Uh, I'm coming back in a month. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't see any more hands There must be more hands There are more hands uh, Always in the middle In the middle here And in the middle there Middle here I'll take a couple more questions Yeah Thank you um, 
Oh no, not in the middle there. Okay, you stole the mic before Sorry. it went to the person. No, it's fine. No, it's it's fine. It's fine. No, 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 no. Keep it. Keep it. Just make it a really good question. Okay, it was actually a follow-on question from the FCA one, which is that the banks, especially the retail banks, have been told they have to change the way they behave to to take account of that misbehaviour. How do they go about doing it? Given the fact that you just uh, observed, it's easier to make money. When you misbehave and take I, mean, I don't have a one-line answer. You know, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not an expert in central banking or banking regulation. It's it's hard, but I'm in favor of transparency. And you know, so just a, f- a follow-up thought on that machine-readable. If um, if it were up to me. Every mortgage-backed security, every detail of every mortgage and every security would be publicly available. Um, And uh, that would turn anybody with a computer into a rating agency. And I'm all for doing that. So I, I, I think if we make the market more transparent then we'll have less need for regulation. Everybody will be a regulator. Can I ask, can I, let's pick up on that, because remember when we were, um, wherever we were, in the... In, in the Marble Arch. Somewhere. God, arguing God. about whether all financial education was useless. Yeah. Or whether there were, it was almost useless. Yeah, so I... That was the discussion. Right, so um, I now have more information. Now you have more information, because I think you were on the side of useless. Yeah. And I had the easier argument, which was almost useless. Right. I, so, so now you've changed your mind with more information. Yeah, uh, useless. So, <laughs> no, no, I'll give you almost useless. So um, there's been a new meta-analysis of financial education. <clears throat> what we know is the effects are tiny... And they have a short half-life. And after two years, there's no evidence that of any effect. Now, this is not surprising. How many people here remember anything about their high school chemistry class? And it doesn't count if you're a chemist. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are not that many hands going up. Uh, So my view is I'm all in favor of teaching net present value in high school. I think it's at least as important as trigonometry. (laughs) Probably more. Uh, But it's not going to help. The only thing that will help is my mantra, my nudge unit mantra, make it easy. So we have to make financial products easier for people to use because... Look, choosing a mortgage is hard for me. I have a PhD in economics. And uh, it's hard for MBA students. We're we're not going to make everyone as financially sophisticated as uh, people with finance majors at uh, LSE. So uh, instead... We have to make products uh, as as easy to decipher as uh, buying a carton of milk because people are good at that. Cool. Thank you. Yes, sir. 
I was going to start by saying hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, neon, but anyway, high school chemistry. Sorry, I I I didn't hear what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. Um, I was interested in taking the axiomatic uh, theory of economics and throwing that to one side. You've spoken about the psychologists having many theories for each sort of behaviour that they're actually seeing. How far do you think it's possible for behavioural economics to get to the point where you have a set of uh, theories that you can apply in practice to make predictions before you've got this? Because at the moment, this seems to be entirely based on empirical evidence you're seeing from studies post hoc. So rather than I think, that. look, there are two domains where we've already made a lot of progress. One is uh, intertemporal choice. Um, so the standard exponential discounting model has been replaced by a a slightly more complicated model I won't go into. One one additional parameter uh, works better. Prospect theory against expected utility theory. There have been many horse races, and as far as I know, it won virtually every time. You know, we need more prospect theories. Um, but they'll come. Okay, let's take a couple more questions. I've got one. I've got one in the mic there, and I've got a mic at the back. I think upstairs. So just take the one in the middle here. Oh, hi! Thank you for the interesting talk. Um, I'm curious to know that um, you said people are not econs, and they are susceptible to all kinds of biases. Um, I was wondering if that is the case, we should be able to make money using your insight. Now, I I don't know of any hedge fund that uses the kind of insight you drive to make any sort to to make money. So I was wondering, do you have any evidence? Is it just that you know you can make well, money? There, there's a, there's in theory, a, you can. There's a firm in San Mateo, California, that's called Fuller and Thaler Asset Management. <laughs> Check out its website. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, uh, back here, I've got yes, microphone here. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you, yeah, you, yeah, you've got it. Um, thank you. Uh, so my question is, um, these... Where the are idea- you? Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, I'm here. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sound sorry. doesn't give yeah. a clue as to location, so... Okay. Um, and the idea of getting rid of, I guess, uh, neoclassical economic thought got me thinking about getting issue. rid of... Sorry, revising neoclassical... Enriching. Enriching. That's enriching. my phrase. Sorry, neoclassical okay. thought um, got me actually thinking about an issue that's very close to my heart, which is... Um, I work in software development, and I'm constantly thinking of ways to get more women into software development. Um, And I read a paper the other day that said that things that could be classified as traditional types of incentives, um, lowering financial or social costs to entering STEM fields for women, actually have not been shown to work that well. But other things like, um, I think the University of Maryland called one of their courses, which had the exact same content, if not very similar to civil engineering course, instead of calling it that, they called it development engineering, which implies a slightly different connotation. Um, but I'm a little bit concerned about this because it seems that if we start to think in different terms, we could become a different type of myopic. Um, so I guess my question for you is, what should policymakers and people who want to affect behavioral change do in the meantime while we come up with a new framework? Well, I mean, there, there are things one can do. I, when I, the first time I taught a course to MBA students on this subject matter, I called it behavioral decision theory, and I got 12 students. 
And, um, you know, that was around the same time as the students were mad at me for my hard micro exams. And so I know I needed to get the enrollment up in that class, so I changed the name to managerial decision-making. And, and, you know, uh, in one year, in, in enrollment went to like 60. And I, I remember asking the students how many of them thought they enrolled in the class because of the name, and no one raised their hand, and I knew all of them had. So... Um, so, uh, yeah, we can do better marketing. But here's a more practical suggestion. There's a very nice study that shows that if you have, if hiring is done in groups rather than one at a time, then you get more diversity. So if, you, if you're hiring five people, it's pretty embarrassing for there all to be five white men. Uh, but if you're hiring one at a time, then um, it's not as obvious. So that's a very practical suggestion for firms that want to become more diversified, which is to hire in groups. Brilliant. One, uh, one final question before we... Thank you. Um, Professor, uh, I actually moved from LSE as an MSc con student to the University of Chicago Business School as an MBA student many years ago, and you can imagine the culture shock because I knew Richard Layard before he was happy, and I then knew Eugene Farmer before he was rich. Um, I now find myself in the position where uh, a couple of years ago, or less than that, as you know, in this country, it was deemed that you no longer had to buy an annuity with your pension fund because presumably the government had concluded, or certainly from their point of view, it's made sense to them and it was useful to them uh, to encourage people to actually risk uh, wasting or blowing the whole lot and so on. Uh, does this actually say anything for the credibility of behavioral economics, at least within the UK Treasury? Uh, well, I will say that the behavioral insight team was not consulted. Uh, <laughs> Um, on that particular decision. Um, but uh, there, I, so I, I've not been in the UK since last July, and um, I, was in, I was briefed on this matter in last July, and I'm not up to speed right now. I know there are many people working on creating tools to help people figure out what to do with that money. Um, it, it's not the case that everyone should buy an annuity. It's also not the case that um, we can depend on people taking that money and doing something sensible with it. So um, yeah. I think it will be up to the government and the private sector to create alternatives. This is uh, this uh, this will be like the last thing we're going to say. So let me. This is the big. Uh, I'll take one step back. The biggest victory for behavioral economics so far has been the change in uh, the design of retirement plans to include automatic enrollment, automatic escalation, and sensible default investment funds. <clears throat> the next big challenge is 
decumulation. It's a harder problem, way harder. Saving for retirement, you know, you, you have a sense of what you might need. You have a target about when you might want to retire. Then the reverse of that is really hard. Uh, there's, there are no easy solutions. Uh, annuities were one, but it's not perfect for everybody. That's going to be a, a big, big topic. If there are PhD students in the audience, that's a great topic to work on. There you go. That's a call to arms for people out there. Um, I should just say this was an event hosted by the Social Policy Department of the LSE and not the Economics Department, which is probably quite telling in itself. Um, <laughs> and uh, on, on that note, um, please join me in thanking Richard Thaler for a fantastic talk and conversation. Thank you. Thank you.